You're listening to Pastor Jared Ruddy of City Lights Church. If you're a guest with us here at City Lights, um, our culture here is kind of unique in that uh, we believe that there's certain things in our church uh, that are free to change. Uh, the models and methods of church, uh, we believe, are free to be changed. In that the scripture never really gives us what a church service is supposed to look like. I think if you read through the Bible, what's interesting is that there's never, it says, this is how a Sunday morning church service is to operate. Commandment 1, Commandment 2, Commandment 3. It doesn't really give us that. But what we do understand is that although church has some flexibility as in style of worship, style of communication, uh, you know, princess cupcakes, all right? If you've got any of those over there this morning, how many people have those, all right? Uh, There's a little bit of flexibility when it comes to style. However, we believe at City Lights that God's word doesn't change. And that the goal here is not to change his word. His goal, or our goal, is to find what his word says to us today. So although we can change some things, we believe that that remains the same. Uh, We've got a great text here this morning. If you could pull it up, Mark chapter 2, verse 18 through 22. Uh, but before you start reading through that, um, I've got a confession to make. The moment, because we are preaching through the book of Mark, it's kind of like someone dictates what you're going to say, uh, rather than just I get to show up and say what I want. And I'm reading this verse, and Jesse last week had just a phenomenal text to preach through. And he looks at me this week and he goes, glad I didn't have that one. So we are preaching through Mark 2, 8, 3, 18 through 22 this morning. Let me give you a backdrop, though, to what's going on in this text. What makes Jesus unique in Christianity, please hear me, what makes Jesus unique in Christianity is not that we see him fundamentally as a teacher, but we see him as our savior. Now, we have to understand that other religions believe in Jesus. Uh, Even Islam holds Jesus to be a true prophet. They believe he is a true prophet, and many other faiths um, outside of Judaism particularly, they're not a huge fan of him right now. Uh, Other than Judaism, though, Jesus is regarded by many people as a teacher. But what makes Jesus unique in the eyes of Christianity is not that he's a teacher, but that he's fundamentally a savior. Let me explain it like this. Um, You're swimming. A few years back, I was, uh, you're not swimming, I was swimming. Imagine this is you, though. A few years back, I was at the Outer Banks. I'm swimming out in the ocean, and uh, it's just my brother... Uh, a couple of my cousins, that's it. There's no adults around. And uh, I was, I think, 16 at that time. I'm a pretty good swimmer. I'm out in the ocean, and I get stuck, uh, get caught in a rip current. And it's bad. And my younger brother is on the shore. And if you've ever been stuck in a rip current, I don't care how good of a swimmer you are, if you don't try to swim uh, out of it, not into it, it doesn't matter. You just burn out. Like, I'm swimming like I'm doing the moonwalk. Like, I'm not moving at all. And I'm, I'm dying there. And, and, and as I'm doing that, I'm yelling for my brother Joel, who there's nobody else there. And Joel, my younger brother at that time, is on the shore just kind of like, you know, chilling on the sand. And I'm screaming. Like, I won't do it because this will blow the whole thing here, all right? I'm yelling. You get it. Help, all right? That's it. So I'm yelling for his help. And he doesn't see me. He thinks, like, I'm having fun. And I'm dying. Like, I'm pulling up. So we're, actually, um, we're actually taking in so much water 
uh, that one of the guys that swims back ends up throwing up all of the water that he it, takes in off all the salt water. So needless to say, this isn't like, oh yeah, we can't know, like we're going down, all right? This is like a bad day. And I'm yelling for Joel and he's on the beach just like, finally, I, literally in God's grace, we, we get out of the rip current, we come back to the shore and, uh, I, and I start screaming at my brother. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm ripping into him. Because one guy starts throwing up, the other one's about to pass out. And I'm like, Joel, what are you doing? What are you doing? He just said, I, I thought you were playing. God, I hate to see you if I think if I was in trouble. Like, what would that, what would that look like? I got death screams, but we we're so far out. Now, watch this. What's interesting about that is in, in this situation, Joel doesn't see anything. But, okay, at that, I was mad. How, how much worse would it be, though, if he stood up? And rather than doing something about it, he goes, swim a little harder. Come, really? That's all you have? A little bit harder, a little bit stronger, a little bit faster. In that moment, is that what I need to hear? Do I need to hear him say, if you would give a little bit more human effort here, if you would be stronger, that's your problem. You know what your problem is? You're not strong enough. If on the shore, if he stands back and just begins to yell those things, watch this, because that's the difference between a teacher and a savior. Because on that moment, in that moment, if my brother would just have sat back and would yell, if you would just do this a little bit better, a little bit stronger, you could get out of this. And see, we have to understand that fundamentally, Jesus did not come to be our teacher. Jesus came to be our savior. It's, the story of the gospel is this. God did for us what we could never do for ourselves, period. Now, is there teaching in this? Absolutely. But let me explain how that works. There's Theologians break it into two different things. There's a difference between the indicative nature of the gospel. The word indicative means telling. The telling, the announcement. There's a difference between the telling of the gospel and the imperative response to the gospel. We can't confuse these two. They have to be separate. Now, that doesn't mean that they're opposite or angry with one another, but they're distinct. The indicative is this, that God did something for you that you could never do. And because he's done that, now there's a response to how you live. But you can't reverse those, and you never see that. In all of the Gospels, Paul the Apostle, particularly Peter as well, constantly draws back and says this, if you've been raised with Christ, in other words, if you've experienced who God is through Jesus in salvation, then this is how you're supposed to live. If you've been buried with Christ in baptism, which he's saying this, that if you've been buried with Christ, your old life is dead. This is how your new life is supposed to look. But he never, not once, does he ever say, if you do these things, then God will do this. That's the difference between the gospel. So this morning, as we read this text, I want you to recognize that how do we understand this? We've got to recognize, first of all, that there's a story going on here, historically, that happened, a time, a setting, a place, that doesn't necessarily relate to us unless we look at it. And then number two, that the scripture is written to us not as an instructional manual. It's not an instructional manual. I mean, really, how helpful would that be if God showed up, all right? He shows up in Jesus Christ, which Christians, we believe he's fully God, fully man, the perfect sinless example, never sinned, died for our sins. How great would that be if he just really showed up and said, hey, let me show you what you'll never do. That's like uh, you're trying to change the tire. You've never changed a tire. And the person's beside you shouting out, uh, you don't know how to do this. Watch me do it. No, like it doesn't help. Jesus doesn't just try to exude 
uh, our sinfulness by showing us his perfection. He shows us the perfect example of one, let me be careful in the way I say this, we will never be able to accomplish, and number two, we can accomplish now because of him. God's spirit in us. Mark chapter 2, let's read a passage. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came to him and said, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now if you don't uh, understand, the word fast means to withdraw from food or some sort of particular, particularly food. The word fast literally in the Greek means to close your mouth. Uh, so it's the fasting why, and John's disciples, this is John the Baptist and the Pharisees, why do they fast and you don't? Why do your disciples not fast? Verse 19, and Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the, the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in that day. Verse 21, it's really a second thought now. Jesus changes gears here. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. Now, there's two, kind of two different angles here. I'm going to address the first part, and then we'll go to the second here in just a moment. Let me unpack this beginning so that we understand what's happening. At the time that Jesus says these words, we have to understand, number one, Jesus is not the first and or last person to claim to be the Messiah. I met one on Skid Row in Los Angeles a few years ago, the wonderful cardboard sign. I'm sure he's still there. His beard's probably longer than it was today. Jesus is not the first and or the last person to claim to be Messiah. At the time of the writing of the scripture, there's nearly a dozen other people that claim to be Messiah, and interestingly enough, um, at least two, if not three, die a, a death by Roman crucifixion, same way Jesus does. Uh, there's actually two of these uh, messianic, uh, apocalyptic, uh, rebellious people, if you will, that are mentioned in the book of Acts. So interestingly enough, we have to recognize that first, Jesus is not the only person that's claiming to be a Messiah or is having some sort of following around him. He's not. And still today, there's others that claim that. Most of them end uh, very badly. So Jesus shows up on this scene, and the people are confused. Because John the Baptist, who we understand is the precursor to Christ in the beginning of the Bible, he, he cries out that the Messiah is here. He's among us. He's right here. And John's disciples, if you remember this, or if you know, most scholars believe they come from the Essene community, which you've heard of maybe the Qumran caves or anything like that. This is, the Essenes were this um, apocalyptic, kind of crazy group that were focused on the end of the world. Have you ever met anybody like that? Their one eye twitches a little bit, right? Kind of like every, every day is the last one. All right. You, the Essene community is this end of the world. At any second, this thing's going to blow all right? And most people believe that John the Baptist was raised in the Essene community and then traveled out of that community, okay, and then came into Israel and said the Messiah is here. Next thing you know, Jesus comes, John the Baptist, very shortly after this text, is then beheaded. That's another story. So the people are confused because in one sense, they see John's disciples who are this, like, radical breed that are fasting 
that are living uh, what the scripture tells us that John the Baptist lived off locusts and honey. Um, I was mowing my grass yesterday. I saw a locust. It was about four inches. I had no desire to taste it. And John the Baptist was just kind of one of the real kind of crazy breeds. And in the same sense, we see the Pharisees that at that time in the first century are these incredibly um, religious and astute people in that they are so serious about faith that Luke 18 tells us that some of them were fasting up to twice a week. And what's amazing about this text, and maybe you're not familiar with this, is that in Mark chapter 2, they say, why are you not fasting when John's disciples and the Pharisees do? What's interesting about this, number one, on this point, is that there's actually only one fast that the people of God were um, called to in the Old Testament, that they were demanded, or uh, I'd rather say commanded to do, that's a better word. So what happens is that God only actually, on the Day of Atonement, one fast, now other fasts begin to spring up, but that was the only one actually in the Torah that was commanded for them to do. Now, of course, there were rituals and fasts that have compiled, but what we see is that by the time of Jesus, by his arrival, what was once this fast, which was really a celebration of whose God was, began to be a religious box of how can I control God? I'll fast two times a week. If I do this, the people will think more of me. If I can become a little bit more spiritual. And Jesus shows up and does something so radically different. He's not fasting. He doesn't look like this crazy breed. He's hanging out with people. He's going to parties. Now, this probably is not the image that comes to mind when Jesus thinks, uh, when you come to mind of Jesus. We think of a, but the scripture actually shows us that Jesus, his life was, he was a, I don't know how to say this in any, this doesn't really sound um, linguistically elegant. Jesus was a party animal, all right? I, I don't know how to say that any other way than the fact that he loved to party. He loved to party. And these people are completely confused. And Jesus' response is, let me tell you why my disciples are not fasting. This is the reason. Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? In other words, he's saying this. Um, who goes to a wedding and fasts? You show up at a wedding. I'm not talking about like you're on a sugar-free diet. All right, that's a little bit different. Don't blame that on God, okay? You go to a wedding. A while back, actually, we were able to go to uh, Nathan Melissa's. What Incredible. The spread that they had. I would hate to show up at that wedding. Someone goes, are you going to have anything? What would you like to eat? I'm fasting. Now, you might appear spiritual in that moment, but you know that you are aching from the inside out. Jesus is saying this, that the point of this passage is not why or why are you not fasting. You're not discerning the person that's standing in front of you. He's saying that all of the Old Testament, all of the fasting is a shadow. It's just the imagery of what's going to come when what's standing before you now is the substance. The very thing you were fasting for and hope for is the very thing that's standing in front of you right now. Now's not a time to fast, it's a time to feast. Jesus is saying, I am the answer. And he goes on to allude to his death and resurrection and says this, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they'll fast in that day. What he's saying is this. You're not understanding the person that's standing in front of you right now. That who I am, I'm not just another teacher. I'm not just another miracle worker because 
we see this later on in the book of Matthew, that the people of Israel were totally confused with who Jesus was. They were asking the same questions that many ask today. Is he another prophet? Is he a teacher? Who is he? We ultimately see that Jesus says, no, I am the Messiah. I'm the Christ. I'm it. I'm the one. And what's amazing about that is that Jesus claims this over and over and over. And for us to reduce him down to a teacher is to not listen to his teachings. To reduce him down to a teacher is to, is to not listen to his teachings. You don't have the grounds to be able to say he was just a, just a good teacher. Again, to quote C.S. Lewis, he's either Lord, lunatic, or liar. He is either who he claims to be or he's a complete lunatic. You can't claim to be the Messiah and then be wrong. And then us go, yeah, he's pretty good. Yeah, it wasn't, wasn't bad. That, that, that's not the way this works. He's either Lord in who he says he is. He's a lunatic in that he was literally out of his mind, which many of the other figures around the first century time were, or he, he, is, he is the Lord. It's one of those footings. And Jesus is saying in this statement, I am it. For us to just say, well, I like Jesus from a distance, I want you to see this because this is really popular in our culture today, is to take pieces or parts of who Jesus is, but yet want to leave the rest of him, of who he really is, out. And I'll show you that in just a moment. Jesus says, no, I, how can you fast? How can you close your mouth? I am it. I'm the fulfillment. He changes gears then in verse 20, or 21, sorry. He says this, No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. When I was younger, I had these khaki pants, blue khaki pants. Have you ever worn blue khaki pants? I don't have them in my wardrobe anymore. I might need to bring them back. Uh, but except these blue khaki pants, and as a child, I don't know what it was about children, but we, we would slide on our knees everywhere. I'm not really sure where you, like, let go of that as you age. I don't slide on my knees at all anymore. But when I'm younger, I used to slide, and I'd come home with these wonderful tears in my pants. Is there any mother that, or was I the only person that ever tore, just on the knees? Why do you, how do you slide on your knees? That is the most uncomfortable way to slide. But regardless, you're sliding on your knees, and I'd come home, and my mom, rather than buying a, 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 you know, a new pair of pants, she would get out the, the blue swatch, Right? And she'd get to, get to work on that thing with a little, I'm not even sure how to sew. As you can see, I never have, hopefully never will. I pop a button off, I buy a new shirt, not going to lie. I use wrinkle releaser, I don't use an iron, you may have noticed, okay? <laughs> it's true. Another story. Like I said, I'm not much, of a, not much of a sewer. Everyone's like, he really does. I wonder why his shirts are so wrinkled. Now, get them out of the dryer, this is the secret. Get them out of the dryer. Sorry, honey. I know it's been two days. Get them out of the dryer. Little quick wrinkle releaser. Pull it out, and you're good to go. If you haven't had it, it's by Downey. It's about four ninety nine. It's beautiful stuff. All right. My mom would work through. My mom would work through these pants. It's and I'd come out, and it was the most uncomfortable feeling. Come on, you know what I'm talking about. You would have these like patches on the inside of your leg, and it would be chafing your knee. And it would solidify over time. And you'd kind of do the, you know, waddle or whatever. And the, the thing was, it was a short-term fix. For a little bit, everybody beside you would be like, yo, what's wrong with your pants? Huh? Nothing. It's blue. Straight through. Dude, you have a hole and then you have a blue spot underneath it. There's clearly something wrong. 
But over time, the more those were washed, sooner or later you'd recognize what? It would start to pull away. Because uh, a cloth shrinks uh, when, you know, especially hot water. Also another little plug. I should be selling laundry or stock in like Procter & Gamble here. Tide came out with a new cold water rinse in case you've seen that. Advertise. Over time, though, it begins to separate. Now, watch what Jesus says here because this is interesting. Because he's making a messianic claim here. He's making a claim of who he is and therefore the response that it demands from them and I would say today from us. Jesus says, no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth. No one takes a different piece of cloth and puts it on a new one, sews it together. Why? Because sooner or later, it will be exposed. Then he goes on to amplify this again, and he says this, no one puts new wine in an old wineskin. Why? Because wine, when it's put in a wineskin ferments. And when something ferments, it releases air. And when it releases air, at that time, it would explode. They didn't have all of the pasteurization uh, you know, process that we use and putting it in bottles for us to enjoy at our homes. That's not the way it worked. Jesus is saying this. If you put new wine, if you put what I'm doing, if you put who I am into your life, it demands a complete renovation of who you are. It would be like this, and I apologize because the analogy will fall short. It would be like, I won't do that one. All right. I'll try a different one. No, I will. All right. We have a couch, and you may have heard me talk about this couch, that I think when we list our house for sale, it will remain with the house. My home was not built to the codes that, it was, that are today. You know. I think our hallway at one point reaches, because of the wood paneling, 29 and a half inches. Our couch is about 31 inches or something like that. We go to move this couch up the stairs and we get stuck. And I called Jesse and Ashley and I said, guys, can you help me move a couch? And how many people know the key to getting people to help you move is always tell them it's going to take less time than it will. All right, no one believes me. All right. Did he just say that? I did. All right. If you really tell somebody, how long is this going to take? Probably about, uh, I'd say about eight, nine hours easy. And how hot is it? Weather report says 92. Everyone has something to do that day. If you tell them, it's going to, I'm kidding. Everyone's like, he's lying right here. Now, that, what I said to them was Jesse Nash is going to take about, I'm guessing about 45 minutes or so. It's really not going to be a big deal. We'll get it up there. And honestly, I thought a couch 45 minutes. In my best pastoral judgment, I thought that was a good Good, good analysis. I used Sal, who's actually my friend's truck, to get the couch back from Boston. My brother gave me the couch. It's a beautiful little sectional. By the time we get this couch upstairs, we've already realized it won't work. We have to get it through the back door. I live on the second floor. We have, we have ladders, extension ladders stretched up. We have ropes wrapped around, and we're pulling the couch in. We're covered in sweat, and we are screaming. And I'm standing like this at the mercy of my wife and Jesse's wife's pulling capacity to not let the couch destroy Jesse and I. Thankfully, the couch made it in to the kitchen. <laughs> After we get into the kitchen, we're thinking, all right, this is easy, straight shot, we'll get it right in there. We get it to the kitchen. Now it doesn't make it through the kitchen to the dining room. In sheer anger, 
in rage. I get out a, a pick, axe. <laughs> I do. Couldn't find a hammer, bad day. I was like, I'm done. Whack! I rip off the molding and just whoosh, toss the pickaxe, blows a hole in the wall, another story. Continue to move on. Now we have it in the dining room. Now it's in the dining room. Not too bad of a shot over the dining room. Then we got to get it over the railing. Finally, we get it to the living room, all right? It's blazing hot. We get the couch there, and we look, and we realize, this ain't going to fit. I just, this is not going to fit. We already scratched the hallway on the way up. I ripped off the thing, blew a hole in the wall with a pickaxe, and now we're stuck. We finagle this couch to the point where if you um, come into my house, preferably invited, I'm not too good when people break in, if you come in a uh, time that you're invited, you'll see our couch fits by maybe about an inch and a half somehow between the wall perfectly as if God created it for that room. I'm convinced he did. Jesus here is saying this. Watch this. No one, no one sews a piece of old cloth in a new cloth and no one puts new wine in an old wine skin. Why? Because you will lose both. He's saying this, that, the, that who I am, your life does not have the capacity to be able to include me and you as two saviors or two lords. He, he's saying this, I love you too much to let you rip apart your house with a pickaxe. The couch ain't going to fit. You can't sew on old cloth, new cloth. Eventually, it'll be destroyed. I'm not going to put who I am in who you are currently unless you sit back and say, yes. Yes, Lord. You be God, not me. Jesus says this, I have to be, have to be the center of your universe. I can't be an add-on, I can't be an appendage, I can't be something you sew on to your, the side of who you are once a week or once a month. I can't be something that comes to the back of your conscience every few weeks. You think, you know what, you know what I really need to do is, I really got to get back in church. Well, th- I'm, I'm thrilled you're here today, but let me say this uh, very strongly and uh, bends my bodyguard, all right? Just because you sleep in, in, the, in the same bed with your husband or wife or whatever doesn't mean you're a good spouse. Just because you drive between yellow lines doesn't mean you're a good driver. Just because you stay within the moral commandments, the goal of Christianity is not to simply adhere at a surface level to the religious obligations of Christian morals, but it is to let the news of Christ, the Messiah, the one who has come, lived a perfect sinless life, was born of a virgin, died, and was resurrected. And when Jesus says, this demands a response. Demands a response. Christianity is not another list of moral commands. It's not a guy on a beach shouting to you, telling you, hey, if you just do a little bit, so a little harder. It's not a person looking over your back. 
telling you, ah, you're not changing the tire right. And it's not a police officer who's constantly following you that knows everything. You ever noticed on roads where there's no defined speed limits, you quickly see who's a good driver and a bad driver? Or you quickly see what kind of driver you are? There's no speed limit. You're on a backcountry road. You know there's no cops. You're doing like a buck 20 in your Ford Pinto. The nail polish coating just ripped right off. You quickly see who you are when there's no one around. But isn't it amazing that when a cop, just a cop on the side of the road, both good and bad drivers instantly hit their brakes and both look the same. Isn't that amazing? I was, when Obama was in town the other week, I was trying to get Aaron from work fast enough, and uh, I was on the highway, and I'm like, I'm not getting stuck. I'll, I'll roll with the motorcade, that's how I do, but not behind it in front of it, all right? Like, so I'm trying to get, and every, there's nobody on 81, and I'm, I'm moving in the most godly Christian way I can. All right, about 85, I think, at that moment. No, nobody around, and I see a cop, and I'm like, instantly, my br- and I'm just like, you know, I don't even know if I hold like a red cross thing at that moment up for him to see or whatever. Like, you know, I'm a blood donor or something. I don't know. But like instantly, I hit the brakes, right? And I recognize, well, Obama's in town. He can care less about me. So then I pulled around the corner. I got to watch the motorcade. It was cool. But what's interesting is that when you see a cop, both good and bad drivers appear the same. Both of them. Because why? The fear of punishment causes us to change our moral behaviors. It causes us to not only try to impress, but also suppress what's truly inside of us. That's amazing. And this is the problem that we have here. Because what I want you to do is process what I'm saying in perhaps a different form than your mind thinks in. Because Jesus is not saying this. Jesus is not saying turn or burn. Jesus is not saying, notice that he says this because it's amazing to me the heavy emphasis that people place on judgment. Now listen, as a Christian, I do believe that there will be a time where we stand before the Lord and there will be a judgment. However, what's amazing about this is that Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't stand in front of you and say, I'm going to judge you right now because in that moment, I guarantee you everyone who went about it, all right, I'm in, I'm out, I'm in. But what he says is this, you're missing out on the joy of your life. You're fasting. You're the ones that are fasting. He turns this whole narrative around in a moment and he says, listen, you're asking why my disciples aren't fasting. You're the ones that are fasting. You're missing out on the very reason you're alive. Listen, there is a judgment, absolutely. But that's not the point of this. The point of this is that that comes after. The point of it is you live now. You live now. And Jesus is saying this, that you have to respond. Have to respond. Now this morning, I'm not going to do anything particular. You know, we're not going to give you a t-shirt on the way to walk out and say I responded or anything like that. But what I am going to ask you is that in your heart, by God's grace, this morning, you would respond to the good news of the gospel. You would respond to the wedding, the wedding feast. The fact that Jesus says this, you can't sew old cloth with new cloth. You can't. The book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 64, verse 4, it says that our righteousness is as filthy rags before God. When we compare our righteousness to one another, our good, our good things, the way that we go about things, 
And, and I, I want you to see this. I'm not, I don't want to just address behavior because I think we can get caught on behavior. Go a little bit deeper. We tend to address who we are as a person by, our, uh, by who we're around. Did you know that if you live next to wealthy people, people that are dramatically wealthier than you, you have a higher chance of committing suicide? I'm not telling you to move out of your neighborhood. What I'm saying is this. Our society, and it's amazing, the way that we're built, we determine our, uh, our person and our social class by who we're surrounded with. If somebody's better off than us, even our body language t- says that. At times when you shake somebody's hand, you put your hand on their shoulder. It's interesting if you actually read about that. We determine so much of our life. We gauge who we are by the people around us. If I have something better, then I'm better. If I have something worse, then I'm worse. But Jesus says something so different. He says that the cloth that we are, who we are, we're not comparing to the person beside us. We're compared to God, who that, if I'm looking at, when we first came in here, you know, this wall is actually not white. It's like, a, I don't know, they've got so many, have you ever noticed, you go to Home Depot, I feel like they created all those colors. How can you have 75 whites? I've heard of white. I never heard of vanilla white or old-fashioned white. All right, that's for another day. When you, when, you, when you look at this, and you think, okay, that's white. Now, if you looked at pure white, and you actually held the swatch up against that, you'd recognize right away, it's totally different. And what we have to be careful of is that we far too often compare our shrunken cloth to the person beside us. And go, well, I'm not that bad. I'm not like him. And we miss the point. That the point is, again, not your moral conformity. It's not can you drive under the speed limit. It's not the point. The point of this is not how good do you drive. It's not is somebody a worse driver than me. It's not how good of a texter are you when you drive. It's not the point. The point of it is this, that in comparison to God's nature is, we have no hope. No hope. That would be a really good time to get sad there. But God, Scripture says, who is rich in mercy, sent his own son. That's the scandal of grace we sang about this morning. Why would an infinite God love finite humans? Why would a God that truthfully, on our best day, we still fall miserably short? Why would he still look at us and say, you know what, I love you, no matter what. And continually, continually offers that grace that will transform us. My hope for you this morning is that you would respond. And if I could have the worship team come quickly as we just sing one song in closing this morning before we have at the uh, Princess Cupcakes. They may check those for high fructose corn syrup. Illuminati, it's taken over the world. All right. I'm, I'm kidding. I don't believe in that stuff. I really don't. And if you do, it's not my thing. Before, before you start to play, I want to I sing 10,000 reasons, just because I really do believe we have a reason to give our God praise this morning. There's a, there's a wedding feast. Jesus is our Savior, not just from our sin. You know, maybe this morning you're here and you're not really geared. You, you hear all this talk about sin. That's what in the world? I'm not really have a problem with that. Well, today Jesus is not only your Savior from sin. Jesus is your Savior from yourself. Jesus is the Savior of the existential longing inside of you. Jesus is the fulfillment, the satisfaction. See, he meets all of us exactly where we're at. He's our savior from sin. He's our savior from shame. He's your savior for your purpose. There's not just one little classification. He just 
No, he saves us from everything. He is eternal life himself. This morning, I'm calling upon you, just as we sing, not not necessarily to, to, to hold the mic and say anything. That's not what I'm asking. But I'm asking you to respond to the word of the gospel, his death, his burial, and resurrection. And this is a time. We, we have a tendency to say, oh, I'll push off tomorrow, next week. Today is a time to respond to the gospel. Today is a time to say, yes. God, I'm not going to sow you into my life. I want you to be the center of my life. I need a new cloth, a new rag. Can we stand together this morning? What I'd like you to do as we just sing this song is reflect for a few moments on God's marvelous grace. As Jesse said at the opening of this service, we have thousands and thousands of reasons to bless our Lord. We really do. God is not out to get you. Maybe you come from a background where you feel like he's mad or angry at you. I say this gracefully. If you can't dodge bird droppings, you couldn't dodge God's judgment. He's not out to get you. If he wanted to take you out, he would have a long, long, long time ago. That's not who he is. God's not out to get you. Our God is rich in love, strong in mercy. And it's, listen, it's not that sin is not a big deal. It's a huge deal. But it's so huge that he is the solution. And this morning, all we do by grace is say, Lord, I receive you. But listen, I don't just sow you on and say, I receive you as my Lord. And let me do what I want. No, no, no. We begin to say, Lord, I receive you. Now here's my life. Give me a new wineskin. Pour who you are inside of me. Let's, uh, let's sing together this morning.